through their music. Out of the Box with Joey Watson on FBI 94.5. Hello, FBI radio listener. This Thanks for your ear. This is Out of the Box and for the next hour, as with every week, I get to sit down with one person and roll through the stories from their life and the records which have defined them. My guest today has spoken at writers' festivals, addressed the prestigious Oxford Union, done viral TED Talks, written for rags as high-flying as The Guardian and The Independent, and researched history all around the world. But he's not an academic per se, and while he might be a British public intellectual, he is a far cry from blokes like Richard Dawkins and Stephen Fry. Akala is a rapper, and through his music and activism and writing, He's doing no less than confronting issues of race and class that are at the heart of the legacy of the British Empire. His book, which he will be speaking about at Sydney Writers' Festival on Saturday, is Natives, Race and Class in the Ruins of Empire. His live show is also coming around the nation. But right now, Akala, a warm welcome to Out of the Box and FBI Radio. Happy to be here. Thank you. (laughs) Akala, I was I was preparing uh, this show last night, and you might be the only guest, so definitely the only guest I've had, maybe the only one I've ever had, where uh, prep involves switching between a one and a half hour revisionist history lecture at Oxford <laughs> Oxford Union uh, and uh, like thirteen minutes of straight freestyle <laughs> in the booth, both of which I was amazed to see has uh, has yeah, eclipsed you. the one million view mark on YouTube. Yeah, thank you. It's kind of symbolic. Uh, of, of your career really do you think much about how you navigate between those two worlds um yes and no it's weird because of the time in which i grew up and the things i was exposed to as a youngster <clears throat> i never saw this kind of a fundamental contradiction between artist and scholar the first person i ever saw give a lecture was krs one i grew up listening to bounty killer who's my favorite jamaican dancer artist who called himself the poor people's governor. He was one of the most outspoken critics of the Jamaican government, of class politics in Jamaica, but by American standards, he would also be considered a gangster rapper. He's from the ghetto, he's been shot, you know, got shot when he's 15 years old. He's, he's a tough bloke from a real tough part of Jamaica. Yet his ability to articulate uh, the corruption of the, the state in, in, in Jamaica, the concerns of poor people, all those things were just normal things that I grew up with. It was only when I left my household, so to speak, culturally, and started watching MTV and and being exposed to the wider culture that I realized there was all of this other stuff going on. But you know, I grew up on Dennis Brown and Jimi Hendrix and Marvin Gaye and Bob Marley. and, and, And so the artist, scholar, political critic thing was just something I considered normal until I was taught otherwise. And by then it was too late because I was already at 11 or 12 years old writing about that kind of subject matter and interested in that kind of subject matter. But part of it was also my particular experiences, which I talk a lot about in the book, in that I was naturally a really nerdy child growing up. I wanted to be an astronaut. I wanted to be an architect. And in British society, I was repeatedly confronted with the idea, often by the very people who were supposed to teach me, that that wasn't an appropriate aim for somebody like me. And and, and so that contradiction... um, immediately made me ask questions. Um, and, and, the, and Natives, in a way, is a result or an answer to some of those questions. Mm. I, uh, is there a politics in it at all, though? Because, I, I mean, watching your Oxford Union address, um, you're wearing, like, uh, a hoodie and sneakers in, like, mm-hmm. this, like, mm-hmm. beautiful, mm-hmm. I, I don't know, mid-19th century hall. Yeah, probably, it's probably way older than that, to be honest. Uh, true, true. Yeah. You know, surrounded by uh, young kids in suits and... Mm-hmm. I mean, is that just so natural for you that you wouldn't expect anything otherwise? Or is there something that you're thinking about when you do that? Yeah, no, that, that, that's quite deliberate in a way. You know, the politics of so-called street clothes in, in Britain are a way of sort of disguising one's racism. You know, Justin Timberlake wears a hoodie and it's really cute. You put a hoodie on a black dude and all of a sudden it's gangster. There was a, there was a video that surfaced last year of a black DJ in London very, very successful, very wealthy DJ being pulled over by the police and being told by the police that, you know, most gangsters look like him. The guy was wearing like a woolly tea cozy granny hat. But the moment you put a woolly tea cozy granny hat on a black dude, 
it becomes gangster. Do you see what I mean? Think about it. There's nothing less gangster than a woolly, tea cozy, granny bobble hat. But you put a woolly, tea cozy, granny bobble hat on a big black guy, and all of a sudden it becomes ga- gangster, right? Um, and so I, I dress the way I dress because I like the clothes that I like, but partly, I mean, I don't have a problem with suits. I like suits. I would wear a suit to a wedding. But if I'm at the Oxford Union or I'm on Question Time or I'm in any of these places where people would expect me to sort of dress better, whatever that means, I, I kind of deliberately don't because A, there are sets of young people I'd like to talk to and I think just dress in a particular way, immediately there's, there's an affinity there. And two, I want people to have to consider their preconceptions of what an academic or an intellectual is supposed to look like what you're supposed to dress like, we're supposed to talk like. I don't pronounce my T's particularly well and I'm not going to start making an effort to just because that's supposed to be the Queen's English. Um, and so there isn't a reverence there um, because I, I was brought up like many people in Britain to think that just because somebody spoke a particular way, they were posh basically, and they looked a particular way, that that gave them a certain authority, that that made them cleverer than me. Um, and, and you realise as you get older, a lot that's nonsense. Remember, a lot of people don't realise it's only very recently in Britain that you'd even hear a white person with a regional accent on national TV. That's how class-based British society is, that that even down to that nuance, hearing a person with an accent from Liverpool, which we call Scouser, um, which has very particular class implications on, on national TV was, was unheard of. You had to speak the Queen's English and speak mm. like this. And all these kind of ideas of properness and who the custodian of knowledge is and isn't. Um, I, I kind of, yeah, I'm deliberately, when I, when I turn up to Oxford Union with a hoodie on, I'm deliberately subverting some of that, yeah, for sure. Cool. Let's start with some family history. Mm-hmm. Why did your father's parents choose to migrate to the UK? Um, you know, I've never asked, my granddad's passed now, I've never asked my nan that question that directly. Um, what was the historical context but, yeah. in which they decided to? Yeah, the, the context was, so in 1939, there was a, the British did a, so 1938 was the biggest labor rebellion in Caribbean history since the ending of the slave trade. So for about a hundred years after, in fact, almost a hundred years to the day after, um, you have massive labor rebellions right across the, in what was still British colonies, Trinidad, Jamaica, Guyana, um, in which scores of protesters are, are actually shot dead by the British state. This ended up in them commissioning a thing called the Moyne Report, which looked at labour conditions in the Caribbean. And basically what they found was, unsurprisingly, that the conditions of the average black person in the Caribbean had really not improved at all in 100 years. They, granted, they were not enslaved anymore, but they were still in chattel servitude of, of some kind, or um, indentured servitude, essentially. Um, and so in that condition of sort of poverty, you know, even up to independence, the literacy in the Caribbean was below 30%. So after 300 years of British governance, there really wasn't education available in any any serious sense. So massive deliberate structural poverty that, that Britain left the Caribbean with. In that context, and at the end of World War II, Britain takes a strange step of making the entire Commonwealth citizens of Britain. Um, they weren't anticipating the consequences of this. So the British state makes the entire Commonwealth citizens of Britain because they want to look powerful in a post-war world where they're no longer a superpower. So you've got the United States and Soviet Union emerging as a superpower. The British Empire, which before the war was the most powerful entity in the world, emerges from the war as, as a third-rate power, essentially. And they realise that having 650 million citizens, which is what the population of the British Commonwealth was, makes them look much more powerful. What they weren't anticipating was that a bunch of Caribbeans would realise that, oh, if we're citizens of Britain, we can just, we can just go to Britain. And so that's exactly what happened. A boat called the Windrush, or actually there was an earlier boat called the Orbiter, of essentially lower middle class Caribbeans start what is now referred to in British history as the Windrush. So there was one particular boat called the Windrush, but now the whole uh, period of migration of Caribbeans to Britain is referred to as the Windrush generation. Um, So my grandparents were part of that, basically migrant workers from the Caribbean who believed themselves to be British citizens who travelled to the UK in the post-war period in search of a better life, great economic opportunities, different experiences, hopefully a better education for their children or grandchildren, and were met with a hostility that they really, as naive as it sounds in hindsight, they really had no idea. They genuinely believed that they were going to go, it sounds really stupid today, but they genuinely believed they were going to go to Britain and be accepted and be welcomed, in fact, as British citizens and citizens of the Commonwealth and be treated kind of with dignity and equality and those of them that were war veterans, because 
<clears throat> many of them had fought for Britain in the Second World War, believed that they were going to be, you know, treated as British soldiers even. Um, and that wasn't wasn't their experience. But yeah, that was the context in which they migrated. What did being part of the Windrush generation mean for the environment in which your father grew up? Um, ironically, the, the, the first English-born... Because there were black people in England already, so the population in Liverpool and in Wales is about 200 years old. So there were small black populations already, but the Windrush generation was the largest influx of black people in British history. Um, the... British, their British-born children had an even harder time than their parents. Why was that? Because, first of all, they were born English. So they were born with the idea, that, even more than their parents, that they were English, that this was their country, that they should be treated as equals within this country. Um, and, and because of that, and because they didn't have that sort of immigrant thing of get your head down, pay attention, you're a guest in someone else's country, sort of put up with their nonsense, basically as a chance to get ahead. They didn't have any of that because they were born in England. So they wouldn't put up with the things that their parents would put up with. So what sort of things would your father have to put up with? I mean, he fought. So there were in the 70s and 80s, there were, there were racist groups like Teddy Boys and the National Front and others, um, essentially racial vigilante groups. My dad fought those people every almost every day of his life from the age of eight or nine years old without any exaggeration. I mean, grown men, unfortunately for him, my, my granddad left South London, where there's a massive black population, and moved to a small town outside of London. And what that meant was, you know, grown men come into my dad's school because he was the big black kid in school. Bear in mind, he's like 10 years old, right? So grown men come into his school to try and try and fight him. Um, and so dealing with that from sort of age 10, 11 years old, um, it meant having the presumption of innocence removed. So police, whether you're a working man or not, beating you up or brutalizing you. So you used to have a police department called the Special Patrol Group that used to particularly pick on black and Irish people. So back then, interestingly, the Irish were also the enemy, even though they're white, because Britain was at war with Ireland. Um, and so Irish people were treated in a particularly brutal way also. And so it meant police brutality, it meant being assumed to be stupid in school, it meant, so you used to have a thing called educationally subnormal, which are special sets that you put children into who you assume to be intellectually in inferior or inadequate. And, a whole generation of black children were really put into those sets. Or if you take my godfather, for example, who's one of the cleverest people I know, he goes to school, passes all his exams, the mock exams that you take before the real exams. The school call him into the office and say, his name's McGregor Reed. They say, well done, McGregor Reed, you passed. You do know we're going to do everything we can to stop you taking the actual exams now, don't you? Have a good day. Um, just you know, let him go out of the office. Be because back then there was less political correctness. So there was no need to deny, because racism was seen as common sense almost, there was no need to deny it. You know, black, you could throw a banana skin at a black football player and make a monkey chant at John Barnes, as was the no very normal, and, and you didn't have to be embarrassed about it. What's happened in Britain over the last 20 years is that a lot of resistance, so there were riots all throughout the 1980s, uh, a lot of moral progress in some ways as well. You know, British society has changed for the better in a lot of ways. It means that lots of people are very embarrassed now. So they have to deny racist intent. Whereas in the 70s and 80s, there was no political correctness. You, you could just call a spade a spade, pardon the phrase. Um, and that is also in a context, remember the, you know, the British government was still child trafficking poor white kids to Australia during this period. Yeah, the former Australian Prime Minister, Kevin Rudd, apologized about something. Mm. So it's a really brutal period of British history. People forget that a lot of the progress in European social democracies is very recent. You know, we only stopped chemically castrating gay people in the 1970s. You know, and it only became illegal to rape your wife in Britain in 1991. So a lot of what is now seen as endemic to Western civilization, you know, the relative degree of freedom for women, equality for gay people, you could ask gay people whether or not they feel equal or not. But all of that anyway, to the extent that it exists, is very, very recent. Um, and so the 70s and 80s were a much darker day in British history. So in that social context, how did your uh, black Caribbean father come to meet your white Scottish mother? They went to the same school. Right. So, so my, they went to the same school. Uh, both had really difficult upbringing. So my mum, again, even though she's she's white, she had a really, really tough upbringing. Her dad was in the army. They weren't very well off. Um, and, and so what you had in Britain a lot, so most people like me of my age who are mixed, quote unquote, black-white mixed in that sense, that those relationships occurred at the very bottom end of the British social spectrum. Usually, actually, and a lot of the time it was Irish woman and a Caribbean man actually a lot of my mom wasn't Irish but often that was that was the mix because the areas that Caribbeans moved into Brixton Hackney Tottenham Peckham had been Irish slums 
already for 100 years at that point. And so we moved into the slums that the Irish already lived in. So a lot of that integration occurred between between black and Irish people. What did that mean for the way that people perceived their relationship? Um, I mean, in my mum's case, her family had, had kicked her out of the house and the town within which she was born basically turned on her. That was one of the reasons we moved to London. Um, it meant meant basically being ostracized and, and rejected from your from your community. Um, and so it was challenging for my mum because she basically ended up being adopted by a family of Guyanese Jamaican socialists. You know, and so ironically, in a way, my mum sort of benefited from a radical Caribbean intellectual tradition that probably wasn't present to the same degree in the culture of the poor white community in which she grew up. Um, and so she ended up doing a degree in Caribbean history because of that. And I went to a special Pan-African Saturday school. So it wasn't all doom and gloom in a way, in a way that the, the experience of the British Caribbean community in the face of really horrendous hostility is also one of joy, one of victory. British popular culture, as you're gonna see when we get into some of the songs, has been massively defined by, in particular, Caribbean settlers in Britain. Well, let, let's um, get into some songs. I mean, yeah. What can we play in tribute to, to your parents and to your family history? Um, this particular one is a, is a really obvious artist, but it's not necessarily the most obvious song of his that people play. Uh, it's a track by Robert Nesta Marley, known, better known as Bob Marley. Um, and this is a song called One Drop. I picked this song because it is a one of a collection of sort of Caribbean 70s golden age reggae songs that is guaranteed to get played at every Jamaican family function ever. Um, you know, we wouldn't play the, the Bob Marley songs that sort of get played on the radio are not generally the ones that get played at a, a kind of Jamaican family function. I was gonna pick a more obscure song and be funny, or Dennis Brown or something, but I just thought I was trying to be too clever. You gotta pick a Bob Marley. So this one here is called Bob Marley, One Drop. <laughs> Marley there and one drop today on Out of the Box. Normally, I'm told by my guest, Akala, at every Jamaican wedding, uh, he is a rapper, an activist, and a writer. 
Akala, tell me about Camden, where you grew up. Yeah, so Camden is, is, in some ways, Camden is representative of everything that Britain got right, but also everything that Britain got wrong at the same Wait, time. How so? Well, I mean, there are 130 languages spoken in Camden. There, there is as wide a divide between rich and poor as anywhere else in the country. I mean, I went to school with kids whose parents were lords and ladies. I went to school with kids who were millionaires. And actually, you know, and I went to school with kids who were even less fortunate than I was. You know, there were boys in my school who were selling drugs for their dads age 10 and 11. There were Irish traveler kids in my school who didn't have a physical home. Um, yet th there wasn't much violence between children. The children kind of got on, even though there was rich, poor, black, white, South Asian, Somali, Iraqi. Most of the racist experiences I had as a school child came from teachers, not from other students. I want to get to those in a moment. But yeah. firstly, I mean, you mentioned being less fortunate. Yeah. Can you paint a picture of what that meant? I mean, what sort of house were you growing up well, in? Well, I was less fortunate in some respects, but more fortunate in other respects. And that's what I try and deal with in the book. So our house, for example, we were very, very lucky. In the UK, the council housing stock is quite varied. So you have a lot of it that's what we call council estates. So that's living in, in a big tower block. That's most of the council housing. But then you have some houses that are actually nice, fairly well-built homes that if you kind of sort of win the lottery of, of council housing, you can, you can end up in one of those. And we won that lottery, essentially. We, we were in a small house in a small town outside of London, and we, there was a family that had a decent-sized council house who wanted to move out of London. And so they basically swapped with my mum their sizable four-bedroom home for my mum's two-bedroom home outside of London. And... But it's weird because you're living in a four-bedroom house, but you can't afford the gas and the electric, and you haven't got carpet. So physically, the structure was a good structure. It's a nice home. But it was a home that, if it was on the market, we could never have afforded in a million years. And we, we couldn't afford to upkeep the house necessarily in certain periods when, when time was tough economically. At the same time, culturally, I had a richer upbringing than any rich child in England is likely to ever have had. And why was that? My stepdad was the stage manager of the Hackney Empire, which was one of the most important cultural institutions in Britain at the time. Tell me about the Hackney Empire. What would you do there? So it was a theatre. Um, basically, to be crude, it was London's equivalent to the Apollo in Harlem. You know, it was a black-led theatre in the hood. But culturally, I mean, I met Hugh Masekela, the South African jazz musician. I met Angela Davis. I, I saw four or five productions a week. I did lights for the for the a famous Russian circus performer called Slava Pulin. Me and his son did lights for his show together. So culturally, and, and, and that's why I say my life was contradictory. We were economically poor, I was exposed to violence, my uncles went to prison, my friends started stabbing each other at 12 or 13 years old. But culturally I was rich, intellectually I was rich. And, and you see that in the outcomes of my life now. Did you perform? Were you already I, performing when I, you were I, little? I performed there. The first performance I did actually was a dancer. I'm not a good dancer now. Um, <laughs> I did a dance, Ray Charles's uh, tail feather dance with me and all my cousins <laughs> on stage at the Hackney Empire at like five years old. Um, and so, you know, me and my other two eldest siblings, so my older sister and then my next sister down, are all in the performing arts. That's not a coincidence. You know, so we were given massive advantages. Even when you look at the British welfare state, the truth is, I say in the book, you know, I'm a product of the empire and of the welfare state. You know, I went to a school for free. I don't take that for granted. You know, it's primary and secondary school. I went on, so the way that even school trips work in England, if you're from a poorer family, you're eligible for what we call free school meals. You get to go on the expensive school trips at a subsidised cost. So if your parents have to pay like 10% of what everyone else pays. So I got to go to Rome and Barcelona. Now, what's interesting, a lot of other, other, most of the other poor kids didn't go on those trips, even though they could have afforded to go, because they only had to pay 10% of the cost, because they weren't lucky enough to have parents that pushed them to go. Do you mm -hmm. see what I mean? So you have a situation where, ironically, poverty often means people staying in their lane. So even if you can afford to go to Barcelona for 50 quid, or whatever the cost was for the poorer parents, they would just end up going to Butlins anyway, which was like a local place in the UK that basically all the working class kids went. Then all the middle class kids took the expensive trip to Rome and Barcelona. Whereas my mum was the kind of busy woman to go and find out, oh, actually, there is a, this subsidy for poor children. We can make this happen. I'm going to make my son go to Rome. <laughs> and I, ironically, I didn't want to go. You know, I wanted to go with all my mates who were the poorer kids and stay at Butlins. Now, in hindsight, I'm like, thanks, mum. 
like I got to see Gaudi's church when I was 14 and expand my horizons in a, in a particular way. So I don't make the claim that I had the worst, most unfortunate upbringing in the world. I had a contradictory upbringing that in some senses was at the very bottom end of British society and had all of the worst experiences and difficult family circumstances. And on the other side, had some of the very best of what Britain has available to offer. And I think that that explains, I don't think it's because I'm so exceptional and me and my siblings are so innately better than other poor kids. I think we had, you know, real advantages also. Let's go for another track, Akala. What can we play second off the top? Yeah, so talking about the Hackney Empire, we are going to play a song by the legendary South African jazz musician Hugh Masekela. And this is probably his most famous song, a song that I love called Stimela. Hugh Masekela and Stimula on FBI Radio. Uh, it is uh, out of the box, and today British rapper and public intellectual Akala is my guest. His new book, Natives, is out now for, to, for you to cop at your local seller of literature. Akala, what, what does it mean to be an older in a community like Camden? Well, it depends. <clears throat> it can mean a number of different things, right? In On the street, your olders are the older boys who are naughty and badly behaved who are criminals basically um in a sort of not a gang context because we didn't call it gangs back then and a lot of the stuff they're saying in the uk about gangs is just exaggerated but basically the older boys in the neighborhood who you know probably sell a little bit of drugs and probably a bit tough and do a bit of badness so in a street sense they're your olders so elfhorn estate would have their olders or, or Frinsby park would have its olders um, but then an older in a communal sense means something very, very different. So in that sense, your olders are people who have moral authority as well as age over you. And invariably, in that sense, your olders are not criminals. Those are working people. That's your grandma. That's your uncle who's got a normal job, who even the gangsters look to because he is a stronger man than they are. So in my, in my context, I had one uncle who was a working man and one who was a big-time gangster. And the gangster actually looked to the working dude as an older because he was morally not just morally but f physically also you know even though he was a working dude everyone knew in the neighborhood you put your hands on him and he'll break you in five pieces right so there is still an element of threat there where your olders are people that can punish you so there is like i said in a community sense a sense of moral responsibility teachers uh grandparents people like that and then on the street sense, your olders mean something quite different. So it's two different contexts. I think this next question um, pertains to olders in the street sense. Yeah. How old were you when you first witnessed knife violence? Um, 12, maybe 13. Um, How did that play out? I mean, where were you? 
So I was sat in the chair waiting to get my hair done. As a 12 year old? Yeah, maybe 13. I can't remember whether I was 12 or 13. But um, I'm sat wait, waiting to get my hair done and I hear a commotion outside the window. And I look outside the window. Now I know that my friend's older brother, who's also my friend, has just come out of prison. And I know that one of his bail conditions is that he's not allowed back to London. So obviously I look outside the window and I see my friend and I immediately know there's trouble because he's not even supposed to be in London. Um, and then I can see that there's a commotion going on and that his sleeve is already cut. Um, and there are two boys, other boys of his age. So they're like 16, 17. One of whom I know very well. Um, and one of whom I'd, I'd, I'd never seen before, but I, but know who it is now, obviously. Um, and they're arguing, but they've all, the two, two of the boys who are attacking him have got weapons inside a plastic bag. Um, whereas my older has drawn his knife out basically as well and so they're all arguing and, and attacking but there used to be two entrances to the barbershop so while my older is arguing with one of them the other one has quickly sprinted around the other side of the barbershop so my older's backing into the doorway of the barbershop so I'm sat here and he's basically where you are almost backing into the door of the barbershop and the other guy comes behind him and meekly was him in the back of the head like three or four times and then runs out um, and what, what was interesting for me in hindsight was even though I'd never seen anything that extreme before, I'd seen violence before, but, but nothing that extreme. I, did, I went to the phone box, I phoned my friend, I said, hey, your brother's been stabbed in the head, you know, you might want to go to the hospital and see him. And I went back to the barbers and got my hair cut. Um, what made it so normal? Because I think in poor communities in Britain, I mean, in the context of young black boys in London, the British press makes a big kind of hoo-ha and acts like there's something particularly black about this. But as anyone, I mean, as an Australian in, in particular, you won't need any lecturing on the history of British violence, right? Um, but in poor neighbourhoods up and down the UK, kind of violence is, is quite normal. It's not, it's not, it's something you grow up to expect. If you're a poor white kid in a tough neighbourhood in Liverpool, you're going to see stuff like that. If you're in Glasgow, I mean, there are plenty of places in Britain more violent than London. It's just, it's not London, so it's not the capital. And the demography is different. And ironically, Britain doesn't really care um, ironically when it's poor white people dying and they pretend to care about it, poor black people not because they care about poor black people but because there's great political mileage in acting like there's something innately different when black people are being violent so they call it black on black violence even if the person committing the violence is like me has one black parent and one white parent and even if the person I'm doing the violence to also has one black parent and one white parent it's still black on black violence um, but it becomes normal because you, you know it's coming you know your olders you know I mean my my friend was already involved in bad stuff so i i knew at some point some of the boys i knew would probably be killed or certainly would be stabbed or shot um and you just accept that as part of growing up really um and so i think that's why i reacted the way i did i didn't tell my mum because i knew if i told my mum she'd be like you can't go out anymore and you know blah blah you can't hang, you can't go to their house anymore all of that sort of stuff so i just sort of kept it to myself but in hindsight i think if i was a middle class kid i would have probably got counseling you know, I'd have got sat there. it would have been a big moment in my life. Sort of people, the whole world, are you okay? The school might have even had counseling for me if I was middle class, right? And so I think about the way in which poor kids are just expected to sort of put up with violence and just get on with it. And then people wonder why their trauma manifests in violence itself. Now as an adult, I mean, if I saw something like that outside here, I'd be like, that's pretty traumatic. I probably would cope with it very differently still to someone who's never seen something like that before. I wouldn't go. I probably wouldn't go and see a counsellor. I'd be like, oh, someone's been stabbed. Oh, that's, that's bad. And I'd be upset. But but ironically, if you have a period of your life in which violence is completely normal, I don't think that ever really leaves you. I think it's kind of like, obviously not as extreme, but it's similar to going to war in a way, I would imagine. When I talk to people who've been in the army, they know that, that violence is always in them, even if they didn't do it themselves because they, they witnessed it so much. And I think that sort of teenage period of tit-for-tat gang violence it just it just became very normal every few months oh someone else has been stabbed oh, okay. on that somber note let's play another track what can we hit into yes so this now? one here i think sums up what it was like to grow up in 1990s london on a cultural level this is a more positive aspect that the, the, uh, the culture of british music as i was saying earlier was massively influenced by caribbean settlers and one of the uniquely british forms of music that came out of that the form of music called Jungle, which we now call drum and bass, um, which was essentially the Amen Break, Jamaican sound system, dance or reggae samples, 
and British dance music and, and this song is by perhaps the greatest producer of that genre, a man called Shy FX, and we call this one the Chopper Remix. Drum and bass there for you, FBI Radio listener. Shy Fix remix, uh, with Chopper Remix. This is Out of the Box. And for this episode, I am joined by rapper and author Akala. <clears throat> uh, Akala, one thing uh, I learned about you when you were, when I was researching this show is that you were actually a minute away from a career in football. Mm-hmm. How did you fall into being a sportsman? You don't fall into being a sportsman in London, every or in England. Every young boy wants to be a football player. Um, what happened with me was I wasn't naturally very good at football. In primary school, I didn't get into the primary school team. I was more into American football than football because I had a teacher called Andrew Juwiecki who was a big bodybuilder, Polish bodybuilder, who was into American football. So I used to follow American football because I really liked him. Um, then my mum and stepdad broke up and that was a really horrible breakup and my mum got very sick and my way of coping with the fact that I didn't know whether my mum was going to be dead or alive when I got home from school every day um, and I didn't really have anyone to talk to about it and we were not well off and my stepdad had gone now my way of coping with that was pouring all of my energy into football and so within a year I went from not being able to get into the primary school team to getting a trial for a Premier League club but I still wasn't good enough then a year later, I'd improved so much that I got signed to West Ham, who at the time were probably the best youth team in, in the UK. This was in the sort of Joe Cole, Rio Ferdinand, Jermaine Defoe, Glenn Johnson era. And I got signed to them without a trial sort of a year later. So I improved really a, a lot and I learned a lot from football. But I fell out of love with football once it became a full-time job. And it's not the kind of thing you can excel in if you fall out of love with. But But for the years that I played, I think football helped help keep me out of trouble, 
helped me learn self-reliance. So my mum didn't have a car. So I was getting on the train at 12 or 13 years old from North London, where I lived, to Romford, Essex, which back then was real bad National Front territory, racist territory, um, on my own at 12 or 13 years old, three or four times a week. Um, and so I learned to rely upon myself. I learned to be disciplined. You know, there were games sometimes where we had to be at the training ground on a Saturday, seven o'clock in the morning. You know, the first bus wasn't even arriving yet. So I'd have to cycle from my house to Liverpool Street Station in central London and get the first train at 5.48 or whatever it was, you know, to get to the training ground on time. I wanted to be a footballer so much, I was willing to make that sacrifice. And so I learned a lot about what it takes to succeed only in hindsight I realised all this. From my failure, if you if you want to call it that, to become a professional footballer. That's a massive decision to give it up. I mean, something that you'd coveted your whole life like that. I mean, what what did what did other people say? Was it the appeal of of hip hop? Is that is that part of it? Partly. So a few things happened. There were a few people who were invested in me becoming a football player. So my my former gangster uncle had become my football agent, and so obviously <laughs> you know he he was not pleased when I decided I didn't want to play football anymore but he was really sweet about it but he, he was really upset for me because ultimately he saw you know, football is even a, even a career as an average Premier League player is the kind of money that can set a family up for generations if it's invested correctly right um, and at the time there was no UK hip hop industry so he just thought you're going to give up football to be a rapper like rappers in England don't make any money that's in America kind of thing um, but I, yeah, I really wanted to be a musician, but obviously my sister had become a really successful musician at this point, and I just didn't love football anymore. I couldn't picture myself spending the next 15 years of my life playing football. Um, I just wanted to do so many other things. The first thing I actually did was I opened a restaurant, a family restaurant in Cyprus, and that's how I managed a restaurant, a Jamaican food restaurant when I was 18. And again, learned loads about about business from failure. In Cyprus, in the Mediterranean. In Cyprus, yeah, because basically, <laughs> so you used to have a thing in the UK where the whole garage scene would go to Cyprus for summer. So all the young black garage people would go to Cyprus and, and so there was no Caribbean food there. So I saw a gap in the market and, and tried to serve that gap. Um, so I was always quite entrepreneurial. And so it was only a matter of time before I'd try again. And then we started with the record label and then the Hip Hop Shakespeare Company when I was 24. and and you know have gone on to do various other things but um football taught me a lot let's play some more music i guess this is in tribute to both the end the end of football and the beginning of uh, a career in music that now brings us up 15 years into the future yeah so i think this is a really appropriate song for that this is the song that most inspired me to want to become a rapper of any other song i'd ever heard up to that point um, just because of the sheer level of lyricism in the track. This is Triumph by the Wu-Tang Clan. But y'all thought y'all wasn't gonna see me? I'm the Osiris of this shit. Wu-Tang is here forever, motherfuckers. This left, this 97, I ain't my niggas and my niggerettes. Let's do it like this. I'ma rub your ass in the moonshine. Let's take it back to 79. I bomb atomically. Socrates, philosophies, and hypotheses Can't define how I be dropping these mockeries Lyrically perform armed robbery Flee with the lottery Possibly they spotted me Battle scarred showgun Explosion when my pen hits Tremendous Ultraviolet shine blind forensics I inspect view through the future See millennium Killer bees sold 50 gold, 60 platinum Shackling the matches with drastic rap tactics Graphic displays melt the steel like blacksmiths Black Wu jackets, queen bees ease the guns in Rumble with patrolmen tear gas lace the function Heads by the score, take flight inside a war Ticks hit the floor, die hard fans demand more Behold the bold soldier, control the globe slowly Proceeds the blow, swinging swords like Shinobi Stomp grounds and pound footprints in solid rock Who got it locked, performing live on your hottest fly As the world turns, I spread like germ Bless the globe with the pestilence The hard-headed never learn This my testament to those burn Play my position in the game of life, standing firm On foreign land, jump the gun out the frying pan Into the fire, transform into the the ghost rider, a six pack and a street car named Desire. Who got my back in the line of fire holding back? What? My peoples, if you with me, where the fuck you at? Niggas is strapped and they trying to twist my beer cap. It's court adjourned for the bad seed from bad sperm. Herb got my wig fried like a bad perm. What the blood clots? We smoke pot and blow spots. You wanna think twice? I think not. The iron lung ain't got to tell you where it's 
coming from Guns are never own, tearing up your battle zone Rip through your slums I twist thoughts from the heart Try to intrude, loop my voice on the LP Martini on the slang rock, certified chatterbox Vocabulary dawning talking, tell your story walking Take cover kid, what? Run for your brother kid, run for your team And your six can't rhyme groupies So I can squeeze with the advantage And get wasted My deadly notes reign supreme, your fort is basic Compared to mine Domino effect, arts and crafts Paragraphs contain cyanide Take a free ride on my thought, I got the fashion Catalog for all y'all that all praise through the guard The saga continues Wu-Tang, Wu-Tang Olympic torch flaming, we burn so sweet The thrill of victory, the agony defeat We crush slow, flaming deluxe slow Poor, judgment day cometh Conquer, it's war, allow us to escape hell Glow spinning bomb, pocket full of shells Out the sky, golden arms Tune spit the shitty mortal combat sound The fake ball step make the blood stain the ground A jungle junkie, vigilante tantrum A death kiss, catwalk, squeeze another anthem Hold it for ransom, trade while eyes with anesthesias My orchestra, graceful, music ballerinas My music Sicily, rich California smell An axe killer adventure, paint a picture well I sing a song from Sing Sing, sipping on Jing Sing Righteous wax, chaperone, rotating ring Watch kings. all the wooden soldiers, see cypher punks couldn't hold us A thousand men rushing in, not one nigga was sober Perpendicular to the square, we stand gold like flare Escape from your dragon's lair In particular, my beast travel like a vortex Through your spine to the top of your cerebral cortex Make you feel like you busting up from raw sex Enter through your right ventricle, clog up your bloodstream Hot terminal, like Grand Central Station Program fat baselines on ovation Getting drunk like a fuck, I'm ducking five-year probation War of the masses, the outcome disastrous Many of the victim families saved the ashes A million names on walls engraved the plaques Those who went back received penalties for the acts Another heart is torn, as close ones mourn Those who strayed, niggas get slayed on the song The track renders helpless and suffers from multiple stab wounds and leaked sounds That's her, 93 million miles away from Came one to represent the nation This is a gathering of the masses That come to pay respects to the Wu-Tang Clan As we engage in battle, the crowd now screams in rage The hot chief Jamel Ari takes the stage Light is provided through sparks of energy from the mind That travels in rhyme form, giving sight to the blind The dumb are mostly intrigued by the drum Death only one can save self from This relentless attack of the track spares none Yo, 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 fuck that Look at all these crab niggas laid back Lampin' light and gray and black Boom is on my man's rack Codeine was tossing your drink You had a navy green Solomon the fiend Bitches overheard you scream You two faces, scum of the slump I got your whole body numb Blowing like Shalimar in 81 Sound convincing Thousand dollar cork pop convincing Hands like Sonny Liston Get fly permission, hold the fuck up Holla fast in your wig, bad luck I humiliate, separate the English from the Dutch It's me, black noble Juali Came of trees, we like the Genovese Sass on season these degrees It's earth, 93 million miles From the first rough turbulence The wave burst, split the megahertz Hey yo, that's amazing, gun in your mouth talk Verbal foul hawk, connect thoughts to make my man Chow walk, swift notarizer Blue tank, all up in the high riser New York gang visor, word tranquilizer Just a dosage, delegate my clan With explosives, while my pen blow Lines ferocious, Mediterranean See y'all, the number one draft pick Tear down the beat guard, the delegate guard The seagull, the swift chancellor, flex The white gold tarantula, track truck diesel, play the weed guard, substantial, max mostly, undivided, then sliding, sickening, guaranteed, made them jump like raw straight. Triumph by the Wu-Tang Clan, enjoy it on FBI Radio, it was brought in today by rapper and activist Akala, this show is out of the box. Akali, you spend a lot of time um, thinking and analyzing society through the lens of race. Mm-hmm. Um, And class, I should mm-hmm. say as well. Yeah, But I mean, this is both in your lived experience yep. of it and also as a thinker. What do you think when you look at race relations in Australia? Um, interestingly, you know, I'm not in any way an expert on Australia's history or on Australian society. So I, I, I want I want to preface what I'm going to say with with that so that people don't take it. I'm much more informed about what's going on in Britain and elsewhere so I can speak much more confidently. But one of the things that really struck me when I first came to Australia was it was the only place I'd seen in the world where race was not directly linked to skin color. In the sense that because of the legacy of the stolen generation, I met people who to me looked white to look at, who were of Aboriginal origin, who 
would identify as black. And you could tell from what they said, they had lived they had lived a black experience in Australian society. They had lived what it meant to be discriminated against, to be perceived negatively, to be treated negatively. Even though if they moved to England, they would look phenotypically like white people who we didn't, they still had ab Aboriginal features, I'm sure you know, but they would have looked like white people from somewhere we didn't understand. We'd, we had never seen in the UK people who looked that way. You know, the Im image of Australian Aborigines that we, we know is black people, right? I mean, and by that, I mean, people who have dark brown skin. Um, and then I thought about how I'm treated in Australia as essentially a privileged black foreigner. And I see that lots of liberal white Australians would be much more embarrassed to be racist to me than to a local Aborigine. Just, just what I mean? Mm. Because I'm a privileged black foreigner, even though I'm, I've got darker skin than they have. You know, one of my good, good friends is a big Nigerian dude, successful photographer. He loves coming to Australia. He's not mistreated because he's a rich, privileged foreigner, even though he's a big black guy. In a way, a local Aboriginal kid who grew up in Redfern back in the day or Waterloo back in the day would have a much more negative experience, even if they had lighter skin. Just, I mean, so that was strange for us. In the UK, it's similar in a sense that even though I'm mixed, I'm racialized as black. Whereas when I go, so I did have some basis for this. When I go to Jamaica, I'm now assumed to be upper class because in Jamaica, people who have lighter skin like me, because there is not a big white population in Jamaica, most people who have lighter skin like me are actually the Jamaican upper class because the British created laws that people who were of mixed heritage could go to school and could inherit property and all that sort of stuff, whereas fully black people could not. Um, and so the legacy of settler colonialism in Australia is quite distinct and quite different and gives the flavor of the way race relations are in Australia a, a peculiar setup to somebody like like me. Britain has a particular historical relationship with the Caribbean that means Caribbeans are perceived particularly negatively in Britain in a way that they're not in America, for example. So in America, Caribbeans are positively idealized as the good black people. Look how educated the Caribbeans are. They're doing so well here. Why can't black Americans be like Caribbeans? You see a lot of right-wing Americans say that. Whereas in Britain, we are the people that Britain despises. Even of all the black people, we're, we're the group of people who are most negatively stereotyped. But I see here, ironically, I, I'm in a sense a privileged black Brit. I'm not subject to a lot of the same stereotypes in a way. And that doesn't mean that there aren't Australians who would be racist to me. What I'm saying is I, I, I get the sense from all my Aboriginal friends that I talk to, they would have a much more negative experience than me, even if I lived here. Um, because I have a British accent, because I, I'm known to some degree, because I have access and experience and, and class privileges in a way. You know, I, I can afford to stay at a really nice hotel. I, I can afford to eat in the best restaurants in town. And, and, and so in a way, those class privileges affect the way I'm, I'm treated in this society, I think. A, a huge element of your work is um, is agitation, right? There's got to yeah. be an element of it that you're trying to change the world in terms of the things that you see that are wrong with it. Um, no? I'm not sure. I, I used to think that. I am trying to provoke others to think about the world. I think better people than me, as you get older, um, it's, not, it's not so much that you cop out or don't have aims in the same way. As I've got older and hopefully a little bit wiser, you realize I'm not that important, I'm not that smart, I'm not that special. And better, more radical, more talented people than me have tried to quote unquote change the world, and maybe they have to some degree. Um, but really, I think it's it's not about me individually changing anything. It's about me provoking others to think about the world in such a way that we collectively might, and it's a big might, um, improve the world somewhat. But but who knows? Is that lack of optimism just a consequence of the things that you've learned? I mean, are you saying that the world is in some ways unchangeable beyond, unchangeable beyond us? Or... I mean, what does that mean? No, I'm, I'm saying that I am, what, what's the phrase? Pessimist of the intellect, optimist of the will kind of thing. In, in the sense that the world could improve, absolutely. It's improving every day in lots of ways. It could get a hell of a lot worse. And I think deluding myself into believing that I am so special that, you know, the world must change because I want it to. It's 
absurd. The world mustn't do anything. The world can do whatever the hell it wants. I can, I can, I can have the best intentions in the world. I could also be wrong. Do you know what I mean? Like my fundamental beliefs about what would make the world a better place could be mistaken. And I think when you're younger, you don't entertain any of that. You think, well, I'm right. I, I know I, because I because I mean well means I must be correct. Whereas I think when you get older, you realize, yeah, I mean well. I might not necessarily be right about everything and I might not necessarily be right about it. And, and also other people have the motivations that they have, they have the ideas that they have and I think I've just got more, I've got more cynical about or realistic about the contradictions inherent in human society. And I think ironically one of the legacies of radicalism or radical politics often is that you the best achievement you can often have, even if you despise the status quo, is preserving the status quo. And what I mean by that is, the best achievement can often be preventing the world from getting any any crapper or getting any worse, um, it, 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 rather than actually improving it at all. But yeah, yeah, it would be nice to see. Uh, and I, to be honest, I do think broadly over the last century, actually, I say all of that, and I think broadly over the last hundred years, the world has got much better in a whole host of ways, I mean is the world a worse place today than it was in 1919 of course it bloody well isn't do you know what I mean like when the entire world was colonised by Europe when racial lynching was entirely normal uh, when the even the, the faint idea of racial equality was laughed out of the room when the Japanese suggested it in the Treaty of Versailles at the end of World War One, which they did and the British, French and, and Americans said don't be so ridiculous you know so the world has improved massively across the last century the re-emergence of Chinese power even though the Chinese state has massive shortcomings human rights abuses at home all sorts of problems the mere existence of a non-European superpower impacts the world in a, in a way that is a net positive um, and, and so yeah actually I say all of that and the world has improved massively in the last hundred years so hopefully I'm completely wrong and it's due to <laughs> improve massively again over the next hundred years and I'm just talking rubbish and on that uh, very humble moment of deep thought um, what can we play to finish this episode of Out of the Box yeah I think, I think this is the most appropriate song to play at this point and this is a song that was the first song that sort of inspired me to use art as resistance this is of course Fight the Power by Public Enemy and on that note, thanks so much to my producers, uh, Nicole DiPaolo and Bree Jones, as always, and Akala. Thank you very much no, thank you. for being my guest on this momentous episode of Out of the Box today. Yet our best trained, best educated, best equipped, best prepared troops refuse to fight. Matter of fact, it's safe to say that they would rather switch than fight.
check Don't worry, me happy Was a number one jam Damn, if I said you could slap me right here Get it Let's get this party started right Right on Come on What we got to say Yeah Power to the people, no delay Make everybody see In order to fight the powers that be is produced by FBI Radio in Sydney. Find more at fbiradio.com slash podcasts.